Well, I'm joined on the show today by someone I've long wanted to have with me here in the studio, A.C. Grayling. He's the Master of the New College of the Humanities in London, a well-known philosopher and atheist. And his new book is The God Argument, The Case Against Religion and for Humanism. He's here with me to tell us about it and to speak to Peter S. Williams, my other studio guest today. He's a Christian philosopher and a speaker for the Damaris Trust. Uh, he also has a new book. It's called C.S. Lewis and the New Atheists. And Peter is one of the speakers at this year's Unbelievable the Conference 2013. So a very warm welcome to you both gentlemen. Thank you for being with me today. A great pleasure. Thanks uh, very much. First of all, turning to you, Anthony, um, you've got this new book out. Uh, the latest probably in a line of books of a similar nature, looking at the, the God question, religion, do we need to rethink our attitude towards it? Well, what's inspired you to produce it at this time particularly? Well, there's been about a decade or more of, of particularly acerbic debate about uh, religion or between people of religion and people who are uh, antipathetic to it. Uh, a number of notable books, we're all familiar with them, the Dawkins, Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris and so on. And um, it seemed to me uh, an appropriate moment to, to reflect on the debate a, a little bit, not by doing history uh, of the debate so much as by noticing what the dynamic of the debate has been, because it's been quite interesting to observe the responses from religious voices to the criticisms that have been levelled against them. I was particularly interested uh, in the following phenomenon, which is that every year many thousands of books of a religious or religion-promoting tendency are published. Books of devotion, books of exhortation, books on prayer, uh, books recounting personal experience of uh, religious encounters. And these half-dozen, or maybe ten books that have been published over this last little period have caused a tremendous stir and have been regarded, especially by, by people who have a religious commitment, as being variously offensive or missing the point entirely or failing to understand the real wellsprings of faith. And so it seemed to me to be of interest to, to try to take a, a more synoptic view to borrow a term, mm. <laughs> and, and, and just see what, what the nature of the, of, of the argument about religion is. But more significantly even than that, for me, is the fact that very often people say, well, if you were to get rid of religion, what would you put in, your, in its place? And, and for me, as someone who has a, a deep interest in uh, ethical questions, humanism, which is a, a secular ethical philosophy, which I think has a great depth and mm. uh, a great warmth, and it is something that if, you know, per impossibile, the whole world were to adopt that outlook, immediately one huge source of conflict and division would vanish. And we would be premising our view of our responsibilities to others and how we choose and live good lives, good flourishing lives, on the basis of our most generous understanding of human nature. So would you like to see an end to religion? Is that something that would be a good thing, essentially? Um, I mean, in the ideal, yes. <laughs> but, uh, of course, one is... Uh, pragmatic enough to recognise that uh, it may at very least take a long time for that to happen. And so that's where another aspect of the debate comes in, because of course there are three separable, although naturally connected, discussions going on at the same time here. One is what people call the theism-atheism debate, which is really a metaphysical debate about what the universe contains or has attached to it. Something we often do on this programme. Indeed. And then the, the one I just mentioned, the humanism debate, is really a debate about ethics, mm. about our morality. Mm. But there's a third debate, which is the secularism debate, and that is a debate about the place of the religious voice in the public square. And very often people think, uh, when they talk about militant atheists, they actually mean militant secularists, people who really want to push 
the religious organizations um, and voice right back into uh, the private sphere. And I suppose if I were going to be completely frank, I would say that's where I think matters of personal conviction belong. But at the same time, I think that churches, religious organizations, religious individuals are perfectly entitled to their view and perfectly entitled to their say in the public square. But for historical reasons, of course, that voice is vastly overinflated. And I think that's what secularists are worried about. Some people describe themselves not just as atheist, but anti-theist. I don't know if that's a label you would take upon yourself. They're, sometimes in your writing, it does come across that perhaps you have something of a disdain for religion. Uh, one word you've used, at least for fundamentalist strains of religion, mass immaturity. I mean, is that fair? Is that a fair characterisation? The phrase anti-theist is uh, Christopher Hitchens' coining, and my, my dear late friend uh, Hitch I was in very much an anti-theist in the sense that the mullahs, the preachers, the, the people who roused up uh, zealotry and um, sort of unthinking, conflict-generating attitudes and practices, uh, he was very much against them. That actually, if you think about it, if you think about the phrase anti-theist, it's really a secularist uh, phrase. It's about that the, the place of religion in the public square, whereas an atheist, I suppose, although that is a theist's term, and I very often say, I'm mean, mm. repeatedly saying, mm. well, let, call me an atheist or an a-goblinist, and let's have a discussion about fairies and goblins, because to me it's the same argument. But but yes, uh, it it is very, very easy to slip into the tone, into the frame of mind, where you do feel some disdain for people who, for example, um, just don't see the evidence for biological evolution or who really want to impose their views on other people in a in a particularly coercive way as with as in let us say Torquemada Spain or Muslim majority countries. Well let's turn to our other guest at this point Peter S. Williams thank you very much for joining us today Pleasure. on the programme. Um, tell us a little bit about your feeling about the this debate that Anthony and many others have contributed mm, to. Mm. Uh, you've assessed and read pretty much most of the, the main books that have come out in these lines, and you've obviously had a chance now to read Anthony's latest. Um, where, where do you think this debate has come from? Where is it going? Uh, mm. I'd be interested to know. Well, I, I actually have quite a lot of sympathy with the, the, the secularist uh, viewpoint. I, I think um, you can be uh, in favour of secularism whilst being a religious person. Uh, and I think my, my sympathies lie much more towards the sort of American separation of church and state, for example, uh, than the system that we have uh, in this country. And I, I think um, Anthony would have a, a point about you know, uh, bishops automatically having places in the House of Lord and, and this kind of uh, weighting uh, of society for historical reasons that isn't particularly necessarily representative of the way society is, is now. Um, so I have a great deal of sympathy about that, whereas on the other hand, on the on the atheism-theism debate, my, my, my sympathies are completely in the opposite direction uh, to Antony's. You've had a chance to read the book. Um, I, I don't know what you think of um, particularly Antony's approach to the question of whether, for instance, children should be brought up in a religious atmosphere. The, mm. Dawkins has gone on record saying it's in some instances, I think, tantamount to child abuse. Do, do you get yeah. a similar sort of uh, feeling? <laughs> I, from what well, I, I think I found the, the, the tone of, of Anthony's new book um, much calmer than um, something like Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion or, or even Christopher Hitchens' uh, God is Not Great. Um, and I think um, Dawkins would mainly have an issue with um, people uh, 
teaching their children things that he sees as anti-scientific mm. uh, from his point of view. Um, but I think, you know, everyone is, is, who has children is going to want to um, raise them in a way that reflects how they see the world. But I think uh, it's a good point to make that you can combine that with uh, a degree of, of saying to one's children as they, um, as they grow up and develop their, mm. their cognitive faculties that they have to make their own minds up on these issues um, and not to be coercive about it. I think I agree against coercion, but I, I, I did find it. I found it a little bit worrying, actually, the, the way in which in, in the in the book you, you talk about um, uh, the right to freedom from religion also means a freedom from from proselytization or coercive, coercive demands. And I think I would agree about the coercive thing, but a right from proselytization and if it's a right are you sort of advocating a uh, something that's enforceable by the by the state and so on and i mean proselytization just means trying to convince other people that your particular viewpoint is true and since christianity is inherently an evangelistic uh, religion un unlike some other religions is there a sort of implication behind this that what you're really in favor of is is sort of that would lead to sort of um, in effect, outlawing, banning Evangelism. being a Christian, because if you're a Christian, you're evangelised and you want an enforceable right, a right against being proselytised. What, what do you make of that, Anthony? Are you, are you suggesting we ban evangelism? <laughs> no, um, uh, no I, um, I take proselytisation to mean something a, a bit stronger than, than uh, Peter's view. I take it to be, in effect, uh, trying to... Uh, get people to accept your point of view, and particularly in the case of small children, by uh, telling them it's all true that this is the way they should look at the at the world. Uh, a very harsh critic would say brainwashing. So I, I think proselytization um, is different from putting to people your point of view and and saying what you believe and giving them the reasons for it in the hope that they might agree with you. Uh, it, it it is something much more vigorous. I think uh, that there might be a parallel here between being sold a dodgy pension, perhaps, and mm. and, and sold a view about the universe. Uh, you know, but people come knocking at your door, um, and they've got plastic sheets which they unfold when you invite them into your sitting room with pictures of heaven on it and earth and little arrows and what have you, that kind of thing, mm. has the sort of dodgy pension aspect to it, I think. And that's what I mean. I mean, it's, it's mm. absolutely open to anybody to say, come and, and hear this case I want to put to you. And, and another thing to have put the case to, in particular, small children, in a, in a circumstance where they're not at all intellectually capable of defending I mean, themselves against it. For instance, uh, I'm involved in a local church. We run a holiday fun club for children, both within the church and children outside the church invited to come. We, we don't believe we're overbearing in the way we present the Christian message, but certainly we invite children to consider the Christian message, to engage with it. Um, and... Uh, now, would that count for you as a form of indoctrination, brainwashing, abuse of a sort? For I'm not asking you to tell me that that's what my church is doing, but, but in general, that kind of activity, encouraging young children to consider Christianity, 
Is that wrong as far as you're concerned? Well, one must, of, of course, uh, recognise the distinction between um, those uh, traditions which are extremely powerful in the delivering of their message to the young. The Roman Catholic Church famously, I mean, we now have a, a Jesuit uh, Pope, and the Jesuits say, give me the child until the age of seven, I'll give you the man. And they're very, very effective. It's extremely difficult for Catholics ever, ever, even if they do nominally claim to be atheists and so on, ever to quite let go of that superstitious thrill that they have uh, of, of anxiety, by the way, <laughs> of thrill of anxiety. And the same with uh, with um, Islam. Islam seems to be sort of swamping of an ability to, almost swamping of an ability ever to see it differently or to leave it. Um, and in those kinds of cases, I think you have paradigms of how um, religion can be very coercive in its grip on the human mind. Now, the kind of thing that you're describing is, of course, different. It's more uh, moderate and open and, and liberal, yes. But small children are in a context with adults and for good evolutionary reasons children are very credulous children will believe and trust um, adult sentiments and, and views and they will pick up a great deal from it and it sometimes happens later on in teenage life or early adulthood that when they come to think for themselves about these matters if they if they don't agree um, it can be a very painful and difficult transition for them so it seems to me that what would be very good is that from right from early on one says, this is, this is the adult speaking to the child. This is what I believe. This is how I see things. Other people disagree. Uh, here are the reasons I believe, and here are the reasons why people might disagree. And if one had that kind of... If that was the dialectic, I think it would be much less harmful. Well, I think it's time we got into some of the meat of the book. Um, if you're listening and you'd like to interact and feedback on anything you hear on today's show, I do encourage you to get in touch by the email address. That's unbelievable at premier.org.uk. You can also, of course, find us on Twitter and Facebook. That's at unbelievablejb for the Twitter account, facebook.com slash unbelievablejb. And today's show and links to the book by AC Grayling and uh, links to both my guests and their websites available uh, from the podcast page. That's premier.org.uk slash unbelievable. I thought it would seem best, uh, as I mentioned, not to try and do everything in the book, today, um, although it would be great to, to focus on the second half on another occasion, perhaps, but, but perhaps to go for part one, which is really where you deal with the God question, um, as far as you're concerned, Anthony. Um, and we I thought perhaps we could address three of the arguments you critique in the uh, the God argument. Uh, the three I, I thought we could look at today, ones that have often come up in one form or another on this show, the fine-tuning argument, the idea that the fundamental physics of the universe seems to be fine-tuned to produce life, is that suggestive of a designer? Uh, another one, the cosmological argument, um, is God the cause of the universe? And the moral argument, do the foundations of morality require some kind of moral lawgiver? All addressed in, in the book in one form or another. Um, maybe um, the best way to go about this would be for Peter, who's read the book, to mm. you perhaps give what you think, uh, the way you believe Anthony has represented the argument, what you think of that, and then we'll, we'll have a to and fro on it. Um, sure. So shall we kick off with the fine-tuning argument? Um, mm, okay. What kind of treatment do you think Anthony gives that in in the book uh, as an argument for the yeah. existence We've of God. got the right page <laughs> and so on. Um, so if, if I start with just by, by very briefly trying to, to summarise the fine-tuning argument, this, this idea that the, the, the basic laws and parameters of nature, um, if they had been only very minutely different from the way in which they are, um, then life, uh, possibly even you know, matter and so on, would have been I impossible in the universe. 
and that this is um, suggestive of a designing intention behind the universe. Um, to give an analogy, it would be a bit like saying, if I put your, your card into an ATM machine, punching in the right four-digit number is, is, a, is a prerequisite of getting money out of the machine. Uh, that, that specific, uh, particular unlikely number out of all the, the possible range of numbers is the, is the only one that will get me the money out. Mm. Similarly, the, the fine-tuning of the universe, this, this particular set of laws and conditions, out of all of the possible sets of laws and conditions, is a prerequisite of there being life in the universe. Um, now, uh, Anthony, it seems to me, you, you say towards the end of your chapter on design, that basically you say that the fact we, we exist because of how things happen to be with the universe's structure is just a lucky, or perhaps unlucky, um, result of how things happened to be. The universe's parameters are not tuned on purpose for us to exist. It's the other way round. We exist because the laws just happen to have been the way that they are. Mm. Um, so you're basically saying, well, we're just lucky, as, as it were. It's just chance that things are this way. Yeah. Well, that seems to me a bit like if I was to take your bank card and put it into an ATM machine, punch in one four-digit number and take money out, and you accused me of, of theft, if I said to you, um, my getting money from your bank account um, is just the, the result of me happening to have entered the correct PIN number, I didn't enter your PIN number on purpose to get your money, it's the other way around, I got your money because I happened to enter the right PIN number... I don't think that response from me would, would satisfy you as to my innocence on, on, on stealing your money. It certainly wouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the fine-tuning thing is, is a little different. You're putting a great deal of emphasis on the idea of luck, of chance, of this you know, sort of one in many, many billions mm. chance that, that we're here. That's the wrong emphasis. I think that the way it ought to be phrased properly is to say uh, we are here, life is uh, uh, here on this planet, and may now we we're beginning to recognise, be quite uh, widespread throughout the universe. It seems so many um, habitable zone planets uh, elsewhere in our own galaxy. Uh, so it might be a commonplace of, of the universe. But the, 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 the fact that the universe is so organised as to have produced life on this planet is a fact. Rather like the fact that my great-great-great-grandparents caught that particular train and, and went into that particular cafe and encountered one another in that particular way. I don't, however egomaniacal I might be, however vain, think that my great-great-great-grandparents were doing that on purpose to be sure that I, some centuries later, would be born. So it's just a, it's a fact of history and of the history of the cosmos that uh, things worked out such that on this planet there is uh, life and indeed intelligent life sometimes. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, in one way, we are indeed lucky in, in that sense, but is the emphasis shouldn't be on lucky, okay. it should be on the fact. What, what do you make of that? Well, uh, we're talking sort of in terms of an, an analogies here, and I, I've used this sort of pin machine uh, uh, analogy. Uh, Anthony is using this, uh, my, you know, my grandparents had to have met in order for me to be here analogy, and it's about whether the analogies accurately represent the situation with the fine-tuning of the universe. Um, and I think for me that the thing about the fine-tuning of the universe is that, that that complexity, that unlikeliness of the tuning is specified. It's a specified complexity. And that means that, that we, uh, we can know about those, those conditions being a prerequisite of, of any life at all um, independently of what the, the results happen to have been, historically speaking. Um, uh, it, 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 
you know, we can only say, you know, historically that certain people meeting at certain times in a certain cafe and so on led to this particular result. We know that historically, but absent of knowing actually about you in your life, um, we wouldn't be able to independently of that knowledge specify the condition of what what those events uh, could lead to or not lead to or may lead to someone else uh, a comparable uh, objectively comparable sort of outcome maybe not this particular person but, but some other person or, or whatever mm, mm. whereas with the fine tuning of the universe we, we know independently of what actually is the case in observation we know from from an analysis of, of the conditions that only a very very small subset allow any any complex or, or interesting or life-bearing at all. You, you refer to the existence of the universe as a fact and obviously no one's disputing that um, but I suppose every fact we would like to have an explanation for. Now your explanation is it is the way it is as a result of essentially chance. Um, the, most scientists as I understand it who are in working in this area see that as a very unlikely explanation because the chances are so infinitesimally small that the universe would produce life, uh, have the, have the life-bearing values in its initial fundamental mm. constants and so on. And so usually I've heard it's put this way, well it's either, it's either could be chance or some kind of necessity in the laws themselves or design, those seem to be the three options. Now you're, you're going for chance which as far as I'm aware most people in the area are pretty sceptical about the, 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 the idea that, that, uh, that, that I, the things arise by that this all of this was just a pure fluke of, yes, of nature. <clears throat> um, that, that, that is a very, a very human-centric kind of thing to think. How can it possibly be just a matter of chance? And as I said to, to Peter, I think focusing on and emphasising the idea of chance is a, a mistaken view. Mm. Um, if we have the initial conditions of the universe, things follow with a certain logic from them. That's how things evolved cosmically and then uh, much more recently how they evolved biologically on the, on this planet and perhaps on others and that is all implicit in the way the laws of nature are now to say it's a very very lucky fact it was just chance that the laws of nature happen to be as they are is to misdirect one's attention from the, the, the fact that the contingent nature of the universe the fact that if the constants had been different then there would have been different outcomes um, just is another fact. There are an infinite number of ways in which the universe m might have been different, and perhaps there are infinite universes in which they are different. I mean, the multiverse theory now uh, suggests that um, all the possibilities are indeed uh, you know, exemplified somewhere or at some time in the history of the overall universe. But the, the, uh, the, 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 there's a great deal to say about this idea of the analogies that um, uh, Peter has focused on, and that is that if we were to go back to my analogy, to the great-grandparent analogy, Many things, not all, but many things in the lives of my many great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents have to be sort of, you know, as many, 1632, 64, as we go back in time, that many things about their biographies would have had to be just so, so it would seem to me in retrospect, in order for me to exist. And it would be true that they have to be just so in order that I exist, but th th nothing follows from that, that they had to be just so that somehow my existence necessitates in anything other than the rather weak sense of a logically necessary condition. And, and, and the final thing is that if you were very wedded to this idea that um, the idea of chance of mere contingency is very uncomfortable, so you postulate a tuner or a designer, uh, all that you've done is to try to explain something that you feel to be mysterious by something 
greatly more mysterious. And that, of course, is no explanation at all. Well, we'll come to that, because I think that ties in also to the cosmological mm, argument, mm, which we'll yeah. do in a moment. Just, just briefly, before we come to the end of our first part, Peter, a response from you. I mean, why, in your view, mm. is your analogy of the cash machine mm. and punching in the right digits the correct one, as far as the, the universe is concerned? And, yeah. and, and Anthony's view of looking back and mm. seeing that events transpired, the incorrect one, because there's a, you've talked about specified mm. complexity as opposed to... Just, just mere complexity, yes. There's a difference between just saying, uh, just, just chance, uh, like, you know, any four-digit number I punch into the machine is one possible four-digit number out of all of the possible four-digit numbers. They're all equally unlikely. It's not just the fact that, that a unlikely number has been entered into the machine that needs explanation by design, but the fact that the, the only unlikely number that is a prerequisite for the getting the money out, or well, the, the unlikely combination of laws that is a prerequisite for any history of life. Of course, there's all sorts of different histories of life or different histories of the human race that there, there, there could have been. Um, but if the fine-tuning of the universe had not been correct, it, it's not just that there would have been you know, different history of human life or lives or, or different types of life. Or it's that there wouldn't have been any life at all. So there might not have been a universe. In fact. Or indeed, there might not have been matter or Absolutely. chemistry, or, um, wouldn't have lasted so, so long enough, Peter and, and so on. Is, is certain that you've got the wrong analogy here, mm. Anthony, that, that it is about a cash machine, and it is about you can't look back and say well, we're here now, and so that was the way it was. Um, lucky us. Um, it happens, doesn't you it? You wouldn't say that with Peter. Lucky you, Peter, you managed to accidentally put in the right yeah. digits and get yes, my I money. Would be. I would be very sceptical in, in that case. That's true, but, but for different reasons. I think my, my great-great-grandparent analogy is, introduces much, much more um, variability, a much greater set of chances, in fact, m many, many more parameters than the ATM machine. You, you can actually do, there's an algorithm you could imply here about how, how many times you punch before you get the right combination of four. It's pretty large, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I think the number but of my I, I ancestors... Suppose, I suppose large. the point is that it was kind of inevitable in the history of life that people would meet and have children, and you happen to be the end result of that mm. process. But it doesn't involve any design in that sense. Whereas it's hard to see how that is analogous to the universe in as much as the universe um, didn't ha had these very specific initially existing constants at its birth. And, and I, I'm, I'm kind of tr having trouble seeing how that sort of initial set of conditions is analogous to the chance meetings of people down the ages that produce someone because... Well, but I can specify, you see, I, I can say, now I exist, and I couldn't have existed unless, and then I can specify a list of conditions that would have to be met, and among them would be uh, my great-great-grandparents would have to have done things just so in order for it to be the case that my great-grandparents and then my grandparents and my parents and then finally I came into existence. Now, a huge number of, of uh, variables, a lot of things might have gone wrong, so I might not have existed. So if I do, if I go retrospectively, if I look but, down, but the, if I look down the telescope as the as, as the fine tuning uh, yeah. proponents do from the wrong end, I can make it seem to myself that things, wow, they just but worked it, out that way. Isn't that, that, that isn't that great? Something luck? would have existed. It might not have been AC Grayling. It could have been something else. But in in the inevitable meetings of people over time, some a person would exist at the other end of the... That would be true of the universe. There might have been a very different universe with different constants, or no universe at all. And, but but the, the fact is that if I start from my existence, then things had to be so 
in this in the sense of a logically necessary condition for my existing uh, back then. Okay. And it's just exactly the analogy with the universe. Just, just before we go to break, quick, quick response, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on, Peter. Well, I, I think we're going to have to, at this stage, agree to differ over whose, whose analogy is, is the, the correct uh, analogy, which analysis of the, those conditions uh, is correct, and whether or not we're sort of um, projecting ourselves retrogressively back uh, upon them or not. Uh, I don't uh, think we are. I think it's this, this key thing about the, the, the specified nature of that complexity at the beginning being knowable independently of what particular um, history or results uh, has come from it. And it's that concept of specified complexity that we do need to examine. Okay. We won't have time. We're going to move on to our next argument in the next section of the programme today. Um, I hope you're enjoying today's show. Uh, I'm particularly enjoying it because I've wanted to have AC Grayling on for a long time here on Unbelievable. He's Master of the New College of the Humanities. His latest book is The God Argument, and we're going to be continuing to look at some of the arguments he poses against God and critiques for God in that book in a moment's time with Peter S. Williams, my other guest here on the show today. Welcome back to Unbelievable, and the, uh, the show today is looking particularly at Has Grayling Got Rid of God? Um, A.C. Grayling's new book, The God Argument, uh, claims to be the definitive examination of the questions surrounding God, religion, and the way, best way to live life. Well, we're examining in some depth today uh, a few of the arguments that uh, Grayling critiques in that book. Um, be interested to hear your thoughts on today's programme if you want to get in touch, as ever. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk is the email address. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter as well, at UnbelievableJB, or Facebook, facebook.com slash UnbelievableJB. We've already addressed, uh, gentlemen, the fine-tuning argument. We've had a bit of a, a tussle on that. The cosmological argument, which um, is easy to confuse, but shouldn't be. Um, this is a somewhat more, if you like, fundamental metaphysical question um, of whether God is the cause of the universe. Let's do what we did again before. Um, Peter, if you want to sort of give what you think is the way Anthony presents the argument, how he critiques it, and, and why you don't mm. believe the, the, the response goes through. And then we'll obviously... Okay, Um, I think we'll we'll possibly need to clear up a difference between two different versions of the cosmological argument that I think you're trying to address both of them in the chapter. Um, One's called the the Kalam cosmological argument, which is about the the cosmos having a beginning uh, and whether there being a finite past to the universe implies that there has to be some cause beyond the universe of the, the sort of initial stage of the universe and therefore the universe from then on. The other is what's called the, the, the sort of Leibnizian or, or contingency argument that, that says um, there are contingent or dependent realities. Maybe the idea is that, that physical reality is, is contingent and that there can't be an infinite regress of, of explanations of contingent things, not so much in terms of going back in the past, but just in terms of why does, you know, why does something rather than nothing yes. uh, exist? and saying that sort of explanatory regress must terminate in something um, that doesn't require an explanation outside of itself, but uh, contains the ex- the, its own explanation for its existence, that it ex- exists necessarily and is the cause of the things that, mm. that depend, that are contingent upon it. And so, in both those cases, the cause of the universe, the best explanation is posited to be God, because to because be, the universe yeah. is contingent, it requires... That there's some sort of unmade or uncaused 
uh, cause, some yes. sort of first cause. Um, and to, to, uh, we like to give analogies for things uh, in this show. So I rather like uh, Richard Pertil's uh, analogy, where he, he uses the analogy of, of borrowing a book, being analogous to, to receiving existence, ca being caused to exist. It says, if I ask a friend to borrow a book and they say, uh, well, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to lend you this book to cause your existence, in the analogy, but I, I don't have the book right now. I need to borrow it from a friend of mine, mm. and then I can lend it to you. Well, if they get, when they go to their friend and they ask to borrow the book, the friend gives exactly the same answer, mm. and so on and so on, ad infinitum. Mm. Well, then clearly I'll never get the book. <laughs> Whereas if I get the book, if I receive the book then somewhere along that chain of borrowing, of causation, is it where someone had to have the book yes. without needing to borrow it from anyone else. Sure. And, and so this is the, the argument that, as the universe as we perceive it appears to be contingent, require a cause, mm. then we only need to go one step back to an uncaused cause, yeah. say, the, the, the first mover, God. So, so you... you contest this obviously Anthony in the book and um, what what for you is the particular problem you have with cosmological argument whether in its Kalam or Leibnizian form well whether you take it in the temporal or the logical sense of uh, there needing to be a first term to end the danger of regress which is in effect what, uh, what Peter has said um, it, it seems to me that you do nothing at all by postulating that there is a self-caused cause or a first cause or a necessary being. These are empty forms of words, really, which you can illustrate by, by saying, let us, uh, instead of saying God or first cause or self-moved mover, which sounds a bit like a sort of disco queen, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, if instead of doing that you just uh, in, invoke the name Fred. So you say, what is the first term of the causal sequence of the universe? So Fred is who created the universe or got the universe going, we say Fred. And what this does is, uh, I mean, it, it sounds a little reductive and, and uh, um, you know, sort of uh, making a joke of it. But it's in, Yes, it's intended to illustrate the e explanatory nullity of it. Uh, and, and in particular because if you try to explain something by invoking something unexplained and more difficult to explain, you've explained nothing. Now, the fact is that uh, this is illustrative of two quite different mindsets about these matters. We don't know how the universe began. We think that we have a good idea that the universe in its present form uh, came from a singularity, which the physicist cosmologists call the Big Bang. And that may have been you know, one episode in a long sequences of fluctuating universes or many universes. We just simply don't know the answer. Uh, and to, to, to go to the, the ancient sources, um, the idea of an artificer, of a, of a carpenter who made the universe, is a very natural and understandable thing to do. Human beings are very narrative in the way that they try and explain things. But the truth of the matter is, it doesn't explain anything. Why would you disagree with that then, Peter? Well, I think as that, that sort of book-borrowing illustration shows, not only is the, the idea of an infinite regress just, just constantly putting off the idea of a first cause uh, conceptually problematical, but all of the f physical evidence that we have... Um, I mean, the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin at the, the conference celebrating um, Stephen Hawking's birthday a couple of years ago um, said at that conference that all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Uh, even in cyclical models, oscillating mm. universe mm. models, there has to be a finite number of oscillations in, in the series. Um, so um, I think you can argue on good scientific grounds that in fact the, the regress of physical events in the past 
is finite, mm. uh, even if it were possible for it to be infinite, which I don't think it is, it's, it, it's not actually infinite. Right. There was a first physical event, and if physical events need causes, the first physical event needed a cause, and that couldn't have been the previous physical event, <laughs> because it's the first physical event. <laughs> um, so you're, you're pushed to some sort of unphysical un cause of physical events. Now, I think that, of... that last jump, uh, Peter, mm. with respect, is the one that, um, wh where we may find disagreement, right. because it, it is certainly uh, an hypothesis, and it's a respectable one, that the universe does have a, a beginning at some point in the remote past. Um, but there are explanations which don't blunt Ockham's razor quite as much as invoking something which would itself need to be explained, whose existence would need independently to be explained, as sort of setting, you know, setting uh -huh. the fuse going. And th this is the idea. My, my friend Lawrence Krauss just published a book called A Universe from Nothing. Mm. Which We've explains, had him on this yeah. show. Yes, indeed. <laughs> There's a, a review I wrote of it on the, the uh, Be Thinking website. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he, he provides uh, uh, an account there, and again it's an hypothesis um, in uh, quantum theory, about how fluctuations in the vacuum um, can produce something. Uh, may, may indeed, may be but you still uh, been the case a that for in, in in a vacuum is still a physical event. Yes, so, certainly. So on on this case, it's like Russell's point that if the universe needs a creator, why can't it be its own creator? Right. Why, why why can't, why can't physical the, reality? Why can't the first from, fact be yes. the universe yes, rather exactly. than a god creating the universe? Just so. Okay. Uh, because of this issue about the, the the contingent and caused nature of physical realities and physical uh, events. Um, why not say, why do you need to invoke any physical causes for anything at all if you're going to say if physical things can be their own explanation? And in saying that you could put forward the hypothesis that a physical thing could be its own explanation, you're, you're clearly open to the idea that, that something can uh, explain itself without uh, needing to be explained by something outside of itself. So it's not actually the idea of things that don't rely upon explanations outside of themselves that you're I mean, going to another analogy, to. which, and I'd be interested to hear Anthony's response to this. I, I think I read in another of your books, and I don't know if it might even be in, in C.S. Lewis versus The New Atheist, you, you talk about the idea of discovering as you're walking a translucent ball on the ground, yay um, mm. large, and how you would naturally ask yourself, how did that come to be there? And that if you simply expand the size of that ball to the size of the universe, it still doesn't therefore not rise the question, why is this thing here, as it were? Yeah. Simply you're asking it about the biggest thing, the universe itself. That's right. Why, why, that's, that's the why is there something rather than the than mm. nothing mm. question. Um, and because you can't have a, 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 an explanatory infinite regress, you have, to, you have to have a first term, as you say, that doesn't require itself explanation. I think that the real debate is over what is the nature of that thing that doesn't require explanation. Is the best candidate physical reality, uh, contingent, finite in the past and so on, or is the best candidate something like the concept of God? Now, there are a number of problems here. One is that uh, you invite difficulty if you insist that everything must have an explanation which is, as it were, independent of itself, so it can be genuine. Oh, that's positive. exactly what I'm not What I'm not insisting. I'm insisting that that's not the case. All right, well, yeah. it, but supposing it were, then of course you've got the problem about the, the first cause or the, or the, the creator of the universe. Mm. Um, the, 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 another problem is that, that there does seem to be a logical fallacy in play here, the fallacy of composition, which is that everything in the if everything, every individual event or thing in the universe requires a cause, it doesn't follow that the universe itself requires a cause. This is like saying that because of where 
whale is a whale and another whale is a whale, that the school of whales is a whale. And that, that, that's just a fallacy. So there is a difficulty there too. But I think, I think the, the, the real problem with the argument is the jump that goes from saying the universe appears to us, creatures of our kind, of our cognitive capacities, to be a certain way. This ties in, by the way, also with the fine-tuning uh, thing. Mm. People sometimes notice with a great gasp that human beings, our size, our scale, lies exactly halfway between the very smallest and the very largest that we've so far been able to, to uh, speculate about, uh, and don't see this as, a, as a, an artefact of the fact that we are the scale we are. And our, our place in the universe is such that the ultimate nature of, of reality, uh, as physically described, uh, is probably very different from the way it seems to us because of our limitations and so on. So the same thing applies to the cosmological versions of the cosmological argument, which say we think of things as being caused. We can't get our head around the idea that something might be uncaused, or we find it very difficult to explain without a lot of apparatus how something might be self-caused, as is the case with quantum mechanics or, or uh, current cosmological theory. And uh, it, it's difficult, therefore, to do it. And so we have a tendency to leap to the idea of agency. And this is a significant fact, this, because if you think about theological or religious uh, um, explanations for things, they all of them seem to have an ancestor in the idea that we can't explain things unless agency is involved. And this is a projection from our own experience as agents, that we're able to initiate causal chains of events. And so we assume, for example, that the universe must have an agency behind it. And this, of course, is just... Uh, yeah. OK. But the, the version of the cosmological arguments I gave didn't invoke the concept of agency uh, at all. They just invoked the concept of, of explanation and left the type of explanation... Um, completely uh, unanalyzed, tantalizingly dangling. But I think the key thing is, is explanation, um, and I don't think there's there's a fallacy of composition there any more than saying you know a, a wall that's made up of bricks is therefore a brick wall. A universe that's made up of contingent events is therefore a, a contingent well, re careful, reality. I mean, a, a wall made of bricks is not a brick. It's not a brick, but it is, is it a brick wall? Its nature is still brickish, <laughs> rather, rather than suddenly, because you put lots of brick together, you get something of, a, of an entirely different uh, nature. And I think putting contingent things or caused things together doesn't suddenly buy you an uncaused thing. And certainly if you look at the, the Kalam version of the argument, the key thing there is that there, there's a first physical thing or event um, to which you cannot appeal for its explanation to the previous physical thing no, because there isn't you can one. appeal to, to, to itself. I mean, there seems to be no reason. We have a very, very good and indeed powerfully supported uh, a theory about um, the universe's history over the last 13 billion years from a singularity with inflation in the early phases, which requires no nothing external to itself. It requires only an understanding of the laws of physics. And we, we know that better forms of explanation are those that that um, you know, respect Occam's razor, that is, use as few assumptions as you can and, and uh, appeal to as few entities and processes mm. as you can. And we have an extremely good theory, a theory which, by the way, underpins and underwrites the use of the technology that we're now mm. using mm. to have this debate. Sure, but that, that, that physical theory is, is a physical description of the evolution of, of, of the history of, of the universe over time from a, from a finite um, past. It's not an explanation of why there is a universe, why there are any laws of, of physics to appeal to in explaining things uh, at all. That's then jumping to the, this metaphysical discussion about what, you know, do laws of physics or, or physical 
things and processes themselves require explanation. Now, with respect, I, I think that is a deep mistake. Uh, the, the, the description gives us the explanation. And, and to ask for something else, it's like your use of the question, why is there something rather than nothing? In, in a way, that's a non-question. The, the fact is, there is something. And our efforts to explain it have been extraordinarily ingenious. I mean, you think about the great deal of intelligence that's gone into making some sense of uh, how things are, what the structural properties of matter are, how uh, a universe like this has um, evolved from its, um, its singularity. And th th then to go on to say, but still there is something left that we need to answer. Why, why is there that? And in is, a way, why is it not a valid question? It strikes me as the most fundamental question in a way. Uh, it surprises me that you would say it's not really a question. Well, let's go back to medieval times and look at two famous examples that are often given by philosophers when they're trying to get their students to see the difference between a real question and a, and a question that's just a form of words. And by, and by the way, there is a difficulty here, which is that language is an infinitary device. You know, by its recursive rules, you can say lots and lots of different things that don't actually make sense. So you can issue sentences that sound well-formed and grammatical, but they, they, they speak a logical possibility. Exactly, yeah. yes. And uh, a lot of problems in philosophy are the result of, uh, you know, wrestling with questions just of that kind that really don't have any real content. And the two questions that famously are, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? We all know that one. And the other question was, did Adam have a navel, a belly button? Um, and, I mean, it's not an unamusing fact that the United States Naval Board of Censors, that was the U.S. Navy, so it's a great pun there, <laughs> refused to send a book out to the troops in the Pacific because it had an illustration of Adam with a navel, right. uh, which is you know, theologically well, impossible. That, that's, so, that's, that's, you know, so, yeah. that, so when you put this to your students, you say, which of these two questions, general philosophical question, they say, well, of course, it's the one about how many angels, because if angels don't have spatial properties, mm. then an infinite number of them can dance on the head of a pin. But if they do, then there is a restriction mm. on that. And, and that is an interesting question. What kind of being might an angel be? The other question, of course, is just a, a sort of n not philosophical question. So questions like, why, why is uh, um, three bigger than two? Or why does the universe exist at all? Or why is there something rather than nothing? Are questions which have no content because they don't have any answer other than an arbitrary answer. I mean, I could say, there is something rather than nothing because two fairies wanted there to be. Okay. And that is about as, as and, and well or, or attested as saying, this, this, Fred. This, this yes, all-powerful um, Fred. Ah, yeah. But then a rose by any other name, as you're kind of saying, a rose by any other name, what, what you'd be referring to by the term fairy or Fred or whatever would still be the concept of uh, a first cause. Once, once you've made the distinction between things that have causes... And the possibility of there being things that don't have causes. If something exists, it either is the kind of thing that requires something outside of itself to exist, or it's not. If it's not possible for there to be an infinite regress of things that do require causes outside of themselves, and it is true that something exists which does require a cause outside itself, hello, I exist, I require a cause outside myself, there can't be an infinite regress of such causes, and therefore, you have to have well, a termination of that regress. I'd just be interested, before we, before we move on to our final argument, coming back to another point that Anthony made, this one about, but explaining something like the universe with something mysterious like God is mm. not a satisfactory explanation. Um, this is uh, the schoolboy sort of 
well, it's, it's something that actually Dawkins himself raises yeah. in his book, um, in the Boeing Seven Four Seven, the ultimate Boeing Seven Four Seven argument. I think mm. he calls it. Um, what, what's your answer to that, Peter? Do do, do our explanations of things mm. have to themselves be understandable and explainable? I think I think not. Um, I give two arguments for this. Um, one is that if you followed the rule that it, it's illegitimate to, to invoke an explanation for anything unless you have an explanation of the explanation, that rule would, would generate an infinite regress, which you could never fulfil, meaning that you could never explain anything. But since we clearly do want to explain things, a science depends upon us doing this, um, that seems to be a, a bad rule to invoke. The, the other way I would put it would be, supposing, and you know, think, think yourself uh, thousands of years back in history when people had no clue, um, say, about the, the explanation for the existence of human beings, didn't understand any of that at all, um, and um, one of these human beings um, paints a self-portrait uh, and someone else comes along, looks at the self-portrait and says, ah, look, a self-portrait, the obvious explanation for the existence of this complicated self-portrait is the existence of an even more complicated uh, human being uh, whom I'm completely un incapable of giving any explanation for the existence of, of the human beings. I don't know why we exist or how we came about or any of that. Um, would that therefore be an illegitimate explanation? Would it, would it actually be nonsensical of them to say, well, the, obviously, the best explanation of this portrait is that a person did it, just because they didn't know how to explain, how, how to explain people. We're, we're, we're in our sea of analogies. I think Justin has put his finger on, on the, the central problem here, which is that invoking uh, an uncaused first cause or an, an agency or something outside the realm of what we know, uh, firstly, really does appeal to something less well explained to try to, to, to explain something else, which, as I say, doesn't amount to an explanation. But I think even worse, it, it fails to recognise that this question, uh, why is Zemmerom nothing, or how did the universe begin, is a question which comes very naturally from our, our psychological yearning for narrative structure, beginning, middle and end. And that makes it difficult for people to accept that things just are. The universe exists and it exists the way that it does we make our best endeavors to make sense of it but and to say and to say that but nevertheless the whole thing needs an explanation the whole thing needs an artificer or a or an original you know cause or an, an agency outside itself is to jump to one of many many different explanations of how it is that the universe uh, started and and uh, you know what, what what account can be given of its nature is to jump to to one which has its roots, and this is what one thing I rather try to stress in the book in a way is that you've got to go right back and look at how these sorts of explanations arose. We find it tempting to think of a first cause or an agency because there is an ancient tradition of religious thinking that comes out of a very natural, you know, that there has to be a king, there has to be somebody who started this, there has to be an agency involved. So it makes us think that this is the right way to think about it, whereas actually it is empty as ex explanations go. We, we will probably have to move on, and um, uh, if you want to investigate more, there's many, many resources out there into these questions of um, cosmology and, and so on. Um, let's turn finally, gentlemen, to the moral argument. Um, Peter, do you want to just give us a, a brief praise of, of how you believe Anthony represents this argument for the existence mm. of God, whether he does a good job, in your opinion, of, of representing it and what, what his response is? Okay. Well, actually, I, I was rather 
sort of disconcerted to see, from my point of view, you attacking an argument that I've not seen any apologist or Christian philosopher of religion actually making in terms of, of what you portray the moral argument as. Because you portray it in, in, in terms of thinking that, that morality would uh, not make sense as a concept unless it were sort of um, backed up by uh, a transcendent um, enforcer of morality who would um, punish those who, who do wrong and uh, you know, praise those who, who do right. This is sort of a sort of God is the sort of cosmic policeman kind of thing. Um, to which the, the obvious and obviously correct reply is to say, look, people can, can be good people and do the right thing and, and know what the right thing is without believing in such a, a sort of cosmic policeman. Uh, and I would absolutely agree, um, but that is not a, a version of the moral argument that I, that I recognise from discussions on the moral argument from God, uh, which... Uh, is ar arguments um, more about the the nature of what such a thing as an objective moral value would be, were they to exist, and how you best explain the existence of such a thing, given that you think that there is such a thing. Right. Okay. So have you? It sounds to me a little bit like Peter's accusing you here, Anthony, of completely missing the target on this one. You haven't even elucidated the argument correctly in order to critique it. What's your What's your response to that? Uh, well, um, I'm uh, delighted to, to, to hear that <laughs> um, people of faith don't think that uh, morality has a divine command basis, but I'm very surprised to hear it because, of course, it seems to me that a, a great deal of moral theology and uh, a great deal of history uh, tells us exactly the opposite, that um, you know, what's good is what God requires of us. This has been glossed in different ways. I mean, you know, it used to be the case that uh, there was a, a punitive Old Testament deity who would punish you for not obeying his laws, not keeping his commandments, uh, to um, the idea that uh, we live morally because we want to respond to the love of God and, and so on. It's a more gentle uh, picture. But I'm very delighted if, if people... Well, I don't accept... know if that's what Peter was exactly no. painting there. I, I mean... Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm completely happy to say, as, as a Christian, I think what is right is indeed what God requires of us. But I wouldn't put the moral argument, I, and I don't know anyone who puts the moral argument by saying people can only know or, or have the motivation to do the right thing if they believe in the existence of God. Is, is that what you're claiming in the book? No, no, the, no, the, no not the, at that's all. No, what I think the moral that, argument is. Not at all. On the contrary, I think people are perfectly capable of understanding the underpinnings of, of morality quite independently of any particular religion. So, but, uh, but, but isn't that the okay. point? Is, is, Peter seems to have read your argument as suggesting that the moral argument, as put by believers, theists, is that people can only do that, recognise moral value, if they believe in God. But you're saying that's not the argument you've, you've placed in the mouth of the, the apologist, as it were. This is very, very helpful to disambiguate mm -hmm. the, the position. Uh, I take it that um, the, uh, the, the, the idea of what is good being what is required by the deity fits very naturally with the idea uh, deeply entrenched in the religious traditions that um, there is a reward and there is a sanction and the reward for doing what God requires of you is you get to heaven and there's a sanction which is that if you don't, if you sin, you're going to be uh, consigned to purgatory or to, or to hell. The idea of reward and punishment um, for obeying the moral law as laid down by God 
That's the point that I'm, I'm making there. And of course, it's very familiar, well, and, and Peter's alluding to this familiar point. Mm. It's called the Euthyphro problem from Plato. Uh, is, are things good because God requires them, or is God good because mm. he obeys the moral law? Well, we'll come to Peter for a response to yeah. that. We are, we are just brushing up against the, uh, the okay. edge of this second part of today's programme, and we, we're going to go into our final section uh, mm. where we'll just have a chance to have a, a little bit of a to and fro on this issue of the moral argument and whether mm. it's been presented correctly in the book, whether how you would respond anyway. Um, you're listening to Unbelievable here on Premier Christian Radio. And I'm going to fill in the rest later because I want to get straight on. Mm. So the final part of today's programme, and uh, Peter S. Williams, um, you, you've claimed that Anthony hasn't represented the moral argument correctly. Mm. Um, OK, let's leave that to one side. People can go and read the book and decide yeah. for themselves whether you feel his, um, the way that, that it's put is, is, is the way that apologists would, would make it. But coming to the argument itself, um, Anthony already said mm. it suffers from this issue of the euthyphro dilemma. Yeah, it's difficult to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, does God mm. command the good um, because it is good, which mm. therefore means it's independent of God or... Mm. Um, the other option. It appears that either way, God is yeah. not the somehow the source. It's of arbitrary moral. if it just depends upon his arbitrary will. Exactly. Um, but the argument then says, and so if it's not dependent upon God's arbitrary will, it must be independent of God. And I think that's the false move. Uh, I think most um, Christian philosophers of religion would, would simply identify God's character, God's essence with the good uh, and say that, of course, Things are not good because God arbitrarily says so. Rather, God says what is good is good because it is good. But it is good in terms of his character, which is his essential character, and his will, uh, his issuing of commands and so on, is in line with that character. Um, but there's an equivocation uh, in the Euphysio Dilemmas between saying um, either it uh, makes morality dependent on the will of God, or it's dependent of God, it's, it can be put without God. Um, well, just to be independent of God's saying so doesn't necessarily mean it's independent of, of God. Right. Uh, because it can be bound up with his character so in line with which he says so. As, as I understand it, called splitting the horns of yeah. the dilemma, giving a third option, which is that the, the good is the character of God. Uh, I mean, what do you make of this resolution of, of that age-old dilemma? Well, I have to say it's it's um, not that easy to grasp. It, it, it's, it's one of those things which sounds like a, um, a bit of a dodge, if I, if I might say. It also, of course, requires us to have taken a number of steps. Firstly, that there is a God. Uh, and secondly, that he or she is is good, and then we need to have some grip on what that might mean. Well, sure and then, and then we have to do the thing which is very important for for Peter here, and as he says, for Christian theology, which is somehow to 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 get a sense. And this is the bit I find difficult to, to grip onto mm. that. Be, be, be because the, the, this being is is good, whatever that means, the commands issued or the desires or the requirements or recommendations that issue from it are are, are therefore something that that flow from the nature of this being without without being what uh, is arbitrarily mm. chosen by that being as the good. I mean, mm. th this mm. is where I, I think there's a there's a circle in there. There's right. a bit of a bit of slipperiness in there which I don't quite get because Peter himself acknowledges and did in the at the outset there 
that anybody who was thoughtful and reflective and uh, sincere might be able to recognise and act mm. upon uh, the good quite independently of all those considerations. And that, for me, is enough. It's, it's again, right. it's another another mm. illustration of bringing in something else, some sort of ad hoc thing, which is unnecessary to the mm. case. Well, I, I, I don't think we're going to solve euthyphrobe yeah. right now. So, so let's go to the core of <laughs> yeah. the argument. For me, for me, it's this, this, the, it's the difference between the issue of, of how do we know or get the moral sort of motivation to to do the the right, and that that's one issue. And I, for me, the moral argument is dealing with the issue of of how come there is such a thing as the right thing to do. It's the objectivity the, issue. Yeah, the objectivity yeah. issue, mm. which I'm perfectly happy to grant. Of course, people who don't believe in God can know about and can follow, but how do we explain, in terms of our worldview, the existence of, of, of individual and human culture transcending objective moral obligations and prescriptions? Um, because it, it, it being objective means it can't depend on us. I mean, give us an example of something you would say is an objective moral. Uh, well, I, I, a classic thing philosophers will say here is, OK, the, the, the claim um, torturing small children for fun is wrong is an objective truth about reality. That's, that, that's just true. That torturing small children for, for, just for fun is wrong. That's mm. something we discover rather than we invent. It doesn't depend upon you or me, our agreement, our culture cultures can be wrong in our moral we can have moral development because there's these, these actual and, and then moral facts we, that we can progress this towards. this means that if there is such an objective moral truth, even the one yeah. <laughs> like this, there must be some kind of um, transcendent moral law giver. Some kind of standard, standard of what, what, kind of, what, what kind of thing is this moral fact well, that let, torturing let's, yeah. let's how do we explain its, its obligatory and prescriptive nature without appealing to something that's personal but transcendent well, of us? I suppose the first question is do you believe in this idea of an objective moral truth? I do indeed. I want to say first however that uh, uh, Peter's selection of an example uh, teaches us that we mustn't take small children to church on Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a cheat. <laughs> Just a joke. Um, yes, I, I do think there are um, objective moral facts which arise from facts about us, about, about human beings. Now, we are essentially social creatures. We need our relationships with one another. And we have a, a, a very good understanding of what, generally speaking, conduces to human flourishing and what causes human misery. So we don't like to be hungry, cold, we don't like to be in pain, we don't like to be alone. We like opportunities to be with other people and to exercise and develop our talents because we're a very uh, ingenious and, and creative, intelligent species. So we have, we have these very general ideas about what is to the good and what is to the bad for, for human beings. Um, and we know sometimes we hurt other people by what we do, and we know we can help one another. We also know that uh, the way human societies work rests upon the fact that there is a great deal of mutuality, a great deal of kindness and cooperation and concern among people. Things work, the buses run, the sewage system works, the lights come on, because people are keeping faith with one another, keeping trust with one another. And out of this, out of community, out of our experience of one another and our sense of our own needs, we know where the limits lie. And I think this, and, this and is... This a is but is this objective? I mean, this is surely yes. subjective on the vicissitudes of evolution and, and so on, if we had evolved to believe that society runs best by sacrificing children, which has evolved in other societies, 
then would that be the, the, the objective morality of that society? No, I don't think so. I mean, of course, there, there have been um, c circumstances where uh, human societies have indeed done those sorts of things. You're thinking of Aztec um, mm. uh, sacrifice, uh, or we think of the Nazi Holocaust or whatever. Mm. And, of course, human beings are also capable of uh, terrible greed and atrocity and unkindness to, to one another. But those are, when you look across the great landscape of human history and experience, the minority cases. This is why our newspapers are filled with accounts of atrocity and war, because they're news. But doesn't but that the, make the morality a majority view, then, rather than objective? It, it no, just no, makes no, it no, no, I think it really does arise out of quite objective, natural facts about us as, what, what, what as social you, beings with be emotions. Interested, because we're short on time, people yeah. some, some brief response to this. Uh, well, I think I... I Kind of agree with the, the question you raised, Justin. It, it sounds like that's actually to sort of make the Sam Harris move that he makes in the moral landscape of, of in a sense, explaining away or reducing um, moral obligations to descriptions of how um, the human species ha happens to work, uh, which even Sam Harris in, in that book explicitly says, of course, you first have to assume that... Um, um, you know, living life in a way that, that, that is conducive to the way we happen to work is a good thing, is a valuable thing. Um, that you can't, um, as Hume um, argued, go from a, a purely descriptive is of, well, this is how we've evolved or how, how we work or what we happen to like to the, the objective moral prescriptive ought. Uh, I think we recognise there are these ob objective prescriptive obligatory uh, values in reality... And you can uh, only get the ought from, from a divine source, in your well, view. Well, uh, from a, at the very least, a transcendent personal reality capable of, 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 of rightly, authoritatively prescribing or obliging my behaviour. it's just Antony's sort of likes, preferences. Yeah. Over, our our evolutionary history can, is capable of giving us certain, certain feelings and proclivities, but it's not capable of objectively, authoritatively obligating me to behave in that way. Now, what, what's happened there is that by, by stressing the word happen, we happen to be a certain way, we've evolved a certain way, and because this is how things have happened to turn out, it follows that the moral principles that we find emerging from our shared experience are sort of merely contingent, they merely happen to be, mm. so they are not objective. That, there is the slide. The, the, the fact is we are the way we are, we are social beings, we do have these needs and we do have these connections with one another and out of it come very, very solid considerations about what conduces to the good and to the ill in human experience. And that is something okay. which is quite independent of my preferences or yours, it's quite in, yeah. independent of subjectivity, it's something where we see where where societies or individuals go off-piste on this and start okay. to act differently, is it, is it we all complain. Of, of subjectivity? Well, I, I was going to say, but the Euphizio uh, critique of, of the divine um, rooting of morality was that if, if uh, God arbitrarily chooses what is right and what is wrong, then that means that, that morality is no longer ob objective. Um, but his, you know, God's arbitrary choice of what's right and wrong would be completely independent of us. That would be a fact about reality that He's chosen that and created us in a certain way, and so on. Uh, and yet, you then want to seem to want to transfer that that critique by saying, well, just because um, our evolutionary history happens, you know, to have been contingently a certain way, that doesn't mean that. I'm uh, getting away from the object objectivity of moral values, and yet in the case where someone would appeal to God's arbitrary choice of, of things, you do want to press 
that critique? Well, there's nothing arbitrary about the kinds of things that uh, we know from our own cases and our experience of others um, make for the good and, 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 and make for the bad in human experience. Nothing arbitrary about it. It's based very solidly in facts about us and our emotional mm. and social lives. I mean, when Leibniz was um, criticizing the idea that uh, divine command has to be the source of morality, he was saying that we, from the basis of our own human experience, know that if God were to uh, legislate for murder, mm. that we would find that very disagreeable. Uh, and that, so that is the respect in which such commandments would be arbitrary, precisely because they conflict with the non-arbitrariness of facts about us. We, we are like going to have to start to draw yeah, That's relative to, to contingent facts about, about us in that case. We, 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 we'll have to <laughs> Their contingency to <laughs> is... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry we've Justin, out of time. And, and we, I'd love to continue the conversation. Perhaps we can do that on another occasion and even tackle the second half of the book. Um, really enjoyable having you in today. Anthony, it's certainly uh, got, got us all thinking, and uh, thank you for the book. If you want to find out more, um, do check out the website today. Um, but thank you very much for the moment for coming in to the studio and, and sharing your time with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks and very thanks much. Also and thank Peter you, Anthony. Thank you, Peter. Yeah.